This is Power Athlete Radio. With your hosts, Denny Kaye, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Welcome to episode 68 of Power Athlete Radio. And boy, do we have a good one. I know we've been bringing in some awesome guests lately. We posted some stuff on social media, just kind of highlighting who's been on the show. But today we have Dr. Squat himself, Fred Hatfield, joining us. How are you doing today, sir? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. Uh, and as always, we got the power athlete coaches, John, Luke, and Text. How's it going, guys? What's going on, Benny? What's happening? How you doing, guys? And just as a heads up, Callie is here, too. Okay. 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 I didn't hear in the background in our little pre-show warm-up. Usually she... She's well, you know, somebody has, to, somebody has to work, Benny, so... Yeah, that's true. I figured you, you know, we're behind there, just like ingrained in your computer, working mm-hmm. hard. Yeah, Kyle's been answering but emails. I was out there for a week. John and I have been in this Chinese finger trap thing for like an hour this morning so far <laughs> trying to figure it out. So yeah, right. it's pretty, pretty pertinent research to the training philosophy. <laughs> no, but uh, this one's awesome. Uh, every show is awesome. But, you know, before I um, kind of got into more strength and conditioning and I did my time as a personal trainer, um, you're required – to get, you know, specific uh, trainers courses, you know, all those other ones. I chose the ISSA. So uh, I'm really curious to kind of ask some questions as far as like the whole strength curve and some of the um, seven laws of training that uh, that Dr. Hadfield um, had come up with. So I'm fired up. Well, I'm never I'm not fired up. <laughs> and I also kind of overheard uh, when, you know, John, when you and Dr. Hatfield that spoke, I was sitting right next to you. And I mean, that whole conversation just sounded interesting. So is, do you want to kind of lead us off? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of get it rolling a little bit. Um, the I, I reached out to Doc recently just because we had gotten done with this huge testing for field strong and power athlete. And I think we had, you know, anywhere from like, you know, three to 400 different athletes go through our testing protocol. And those of you guys listening that did field strong and did the testing protocol know that we asked you to submit all your data. And as I started looking at the data, I realized I needed to reach out to people that were smarter than me, that were, you know, more educated and had a vaster knowledge. So I started looking back on the people that were influences and uh, you know, this this takes me back to you know over you know twenty some years to being a young kid training in uh, George Zangus's garage and him talking about this thing about bar acceleration and you got to try to you know move the bar as fast as you can and how it has carryover to sport and he referenced uh, uh, Dr. Squat Fred Hatfield who and George were friends and those of you guys know I've talked about George before but he invented the super suit and the wrap and the marathon wrap and I think uh, Doc was wearing one of George's suits when he squatted his big uh, thousand 
2014. And so as I was going through this deal, I um, thought, you know what, uh, who's better to reach out to and, and talk a little bit about some of our testing protocols and more importantly, uh, you know, uh, how to really classify and help athletes reach their goals than, than uh, Doc. So I reached out and we were able to have a really great conversation for an hour or an hour plus and just got a lot of great information that really kind of helped me go in a different direction and create some better programming for our athletes. And, uh, you know, the big thing that I really think that uh, has been just a huge factor is that compensatory acceleration and more importantly, explaining it to people because even though you explain the concept and, you know, hey, I want you to accelerate the bar, you know, through the full uh, concentric range of motion and as mechanical advantage increases, you're able to keep ramping up that bar speed. Um, I don't think that people really understand what that looks like and more importantly, the speed at which they need to move. And if you go through uh, Doc's book, Power, he really goes through and has a great chart talking about, you know, speed of these movements and what the ideal is. And if you go online and, you know, look at some of the Berkashansky and Zaskorsky work, they talk about 0.8 meters per second being, you know, that ideal for speed. So, you know, unless you have an iPhone or a way to kind of time it, it's difficult to quantify that. So Doc told me he had uh, had a guy, I think it was a, a torque meter or something that you guys had used back uh, in the 80s. Well, we ended up purchasing a Tendo unit and, uh, you know, got a Tendo unit sent over and started playing with it on the bar and started timing all of our lifts to try to figure out exactly what 0.8 meters per second were and uh you know the kind of intensity that you need to drive into the bar and it's it's pretty interesting to you know know what somebody's one rm is and start playing with the percentages and then start testing their speed on the bar and what became very apparent is uh you know the people that have the best reversal speed so if i can transition from my eccentric to isometric to concentric contraction like in the squat for example more violently i can create that transition, the greater speed I can generate. And so that became a big deal. And I want to ask him a couple more questions about reversal speed or that starting strength and how we can really attack that. Because I really think that is uh, that barrier between, you know, people, you know, everybody wants to move fast, but can you, you know, generate enough force? Is there enough stored force and elasticity of the, you know, of the tendons and muscles and whatnot to be able to make it happen? So, um, you know, and then it's like, how do you build that? Is it, you know, through plyometrics? Is it jumping? Is it, uh, you know, lighter weights teaching people? Is it loading? I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's a million different variables. And as you go back and you start trying to arrange training and trying to figure out how to attack people's weaknesses, I think these all become, you know, the questions that we ask and more importantly, the, uh, the little knobs that we try to turn up to make a perfect sounder or a better athlete. So, well, there you go, John. I mean, every, everything, everything you just said, I was going to say so. <laughs> well, I, I said, so we, we talked and I based, and I, I listened. I went back and listened to it. That was a nice synopsis. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, that was pretty much the gist of our conversation. And I, you know, I went home and I listened to it and I thought, I'm like, hey, can I record this? Because I don't want to take notes. And I went back and listened and it was, you know, uh, it was so enlightening to, to you know, to know that, you know, hey, like this is, you know, this is the right mindset. This is the good direction. But, uh, you yeah, know, I don't want to steal all Doc's thunder, but, you know, part of that deal. And I think what we've really seen the difference between 
athletes is their ability to, you know, with bar speed, like how they do things, how explosive they are, how fast they can move. And, I, and uh, you know, when we started watching a lot of videos of guys squatting, especially in benching and doing different movements, one thing that blew me away is uh, there's no way to do a box jump or some form of jumping slow. There's no way to Olympic lift slow. And, you know, the only, you know, and if you move slow, you don't get the lift, you don't get up on the box, but with like the barbell movements, you can still do them slow and still execute the movement and finish the movement. And it, it really was one of those things I took a step back and I realized like, I don't think people take the same mindset when they go into, you know, like a bench squat deadlift or more of those, you know, uh, you know, let's say a linear type deal opposed from like an Olympic movement, take that same approach. And, uh, you know, that Tendo unit was huge for kind of teaching us like, hey, this is how fast you need to be moving at all times. And this is where it becomes. So that was, uh, yeah, it was a great conversation. It really got me thinking in a different way. So that's why I, and then I, uh, you know, selfishly, I got to talk to Doc. And then you guys were like, well, can we get him on the podcast? We don't want to talk to him. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure, you know, and the more the merrier. So um, I'll let Doc talk. I'm probably talk too much. Well, let's take it from the top. Okay. In all the world of sport, speed is king. Uh, nothing is more important than speed. And uh, nothing could be more true in regards to starting speed or starting strength, putting it another way. So let me give you an example of, uh, of a couple of modes of movement. Let's say that uh, you... Uh, you um, squat down with a bar on your back and uh, in order to squat down with the bar on your back you've got to turn off some muscle fibers turn off some motor units that way the bar becomes heavier than the amount of strength that you're putting out so you're lowering the bar under control by turning off more and more motor units correct yes yeah now what most guys do is they hit the bottom and they come out of the bottom and try to stand back up and slowly turn on more and more and more motor units to move the bar. That's what they do. And that's precisely what they should not do. <laughs> what you have to do instead is when you hit the bottom, you want to hit the bottom relatively fast and come out of the uh, come out of the hole relatively fast in order to establish some kind of a myotatic re response in your muscles. And you turn on as many muscle fibers as you possibly can instantaneously, like a Titan rocket taken off. You don't try to gently ease your way into the movement. You turn everything you got on. Now, this takes training, it takes practice, and you can actually teach your muscle fibers to turn on more quickly by lowering the excitation threshold. And that's where that, uh, that uh, uh, little mini gym comes into play that I told you about, John. Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> basically, all it is is a little arrangement of clutch plates uh, attached to a bicycle chain, attached to a, to a bar, which is suspended on this big uh, uh, metal frame. And so the harder you push against the uh, bicycle chain with the bar, the, uh, the, the tighter those clutch plates become. And so the harder it becomes to move. And it'll, it'll keep your speed at a constant rate. 
so for example, if you turn the, the dial on that on that machine uh, so that the clutch plates can only come so close together, uh, you can make the machine a little bit faster or you can make the machine a little bit slower. So whether you're pushing with five pounds or 500 pounds, this bar is going to move at the same rate of speed, depending upon how hard those clutch plates come together. So, so here we go then. We're going to set the, the, uh, the clutch plate such that we can move that bar two feet per second. All right? Mm -hmm. So we push the bar as hard as we can, and, and on the dial, you see that you're generating, let's say, for example, 1,600 pounds of force. Well, now let's adjust the bar so that it moves only, uh, it moves five feet per second. So the bar is now able to move very, very fast. And we get under the bar and we squat the bar and we push as hard as we can. And we don't even remotely come close to 1,600 pounds of force. You're only going to be able to exert six or 700 pounds of force. Why is that? And the answer lies in motor unit recruitment. It takes a good three quarters of a second, as much as a full second, for the average person to turn on as many motor units as possible. And that's not acceptable in the world of sport, because in the world of sport, movements are over with in milliseconds. You swing a golf club, you punch somebody in front of you, you, uh, you, know, you lift something, you hit a tennis, a tennis ball with a racket, and so forth. You know that those movements are so amazingly fast that only a fraction of a second has passed during the conduct of that movement. So it doesn't do us any good to lift a heavy, heavy weight slow. We have got to move as much weight as we can in the twinkling of an eye. So we go back to that machine, and now, over the course of two or three months of time, we gradually increase the speed of the bar, so that whereas we were once able to exert 1,600 pounds of force at a very slow speed, we can now exert 1,600 pounds of force at a very fast speed. That means we're getting more motor unit recruitment in a shorter period of time. And that is what sport is all about. And that is what I teach. I teach compensatory acceleration. You compensate for the improved leverage by accelerating the bar. Or if you can't accelerate it, you try to accelerate it by pushing as hard as you can every inch of the way. As leverage improves through a squat movement, for example, you should be able to move a house by the time you get near the top. And so what I, what I want you to do is I want you to move that house. And that's, that's only gonna happen is if, if you're able to turn on all of your motor units as quickly as possible, surely inside of three quarters of a second. You, do you follow that? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah it, I mean, we're, yeah, we're totally on board. I, uh, Doc, how, how long does it take to, you know, like, let's say you take a, you know, somebody comes to you and they've been, you know, that with that whole train slow, be slow, they've been just kind of grinding through, grinding through, you know, each lift looks kind of real slow and controlled. How long does it take an athlete when all of a sudden you bring them in and they got a fairly decent strength base to all of a sudden uh, take it to where, uh, you know, 
they're able to actually use compensatory acceleration and get their muscles to turn on. I'm, I'm kind of a believer that if you've always trained in kind of a slow environment, that it's going to take you longer to be able to kind of change over the physiology and start becoming more dynamic in a way. And to pile on that, what other contributing factors could there be, whether it's gender, chronological age, training uh, age. Tra and training age? Yeah, hormones. I mean, there could be key factors. Well, all of those factors come into play, of course. We all know that guys, for example, are able to generate greater force than, than, than girls. But the primary reason for that lies in the fact that guys typically have bigger muscles. So, you, know, you, you needn't go much farther than that. They have the same motor units. They have the same uh, uh, ability to turn on motor units. But, uh, but when you have bigger ones and more of them, you're going you're gonna to move heavier weights and create greater speed. So, and then the uh, hormones, guys have testosterone, girls have very little testosterone. So guys recover faster from exercise and the supercompensation principle becomes much more pronounced with guys because they are able to make their muscles much bigger than girls can make their muscles. With, with white muscle fiber, for example, that is the fast twitch fiber, you can, you can get those fibers to get as much as 80 to 100% bigger than they ordinarily would be in their detrained state. But girls can't do that. Girls can't get their muscle fibers to grow that much simply because they lack their hormonal um, milieu. Now, there, but there are several other factors as well. I mentioned the myotatic response. You, you can't go down in for, well, and we're using a squat movement because the squat movement is very representative of almost all, all sport movements. For example, you, you uh, rear back and you throw. Well, the rear back is like squatting down. Or your foot hits the uh, takeoff board and your knee bends. That's like squatting down. And then, boom, you push off for the long jump. So squatting down with a bar on your shoulders is representative of most sports movements. And you've got to go down as quickly as you can in order to get that myotatic response, but not so quickly that you crumble yourself into the ground by going down too fast. It's got to be under control and so that when you hit that sweet spot right at the bottom, just below parallel, for example, you've got to be able to turn on everything you've got instantly. And that brings in uh, the element of danger. Believe me when I tell you that is the single most uh, uh, prevalent source of injury in the world of powerlifting, coming off the chest in a bench press or coming out of the hole in a squat. Most guys, most lifters are not going to hurt themselves up near the top of the lift. They're going to hurt themselves coming out of the hole. And that's because you turn on so many motor units at once that they're not ready to handle that kind of stress and they tear. So you've got to get yourself ready through proper training, proper periodization, getting all of the connective tissues and uh, so forth strengthened around the joint and uh, within the muscle itself so that you can withstand that kind of stress. That's where plyometric training comes in, for example. Slow and easy at first and gradually increasing in intensity so you can do depth jumps off of a higher box and uh, so forth. But you can't do that at once. So to answer your question, you go into the gym and expect that you're going to be able to utilize compensatory acceleration in all of its glory to in, improve your lifting ability. You've got another thing coming. It's going to take you months. 
And I'm talking about doing it in such a way where it's going to be safe to do and where it's going to optimize your ability to lift that heavier weight. It takes months. With me, it took a lifetime. So are you, are you still using it, Doc? <laughs> At 70 something, I, you know, no, I don't. I, I get out of my chair very slowly these days. <laughs> when you get behind the wheel, uh, when I drive places, I like to use compensatory acceleration. Oh, God. Just, I literally ram my foot in the gas. It's, it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. Well, yeah, well, that's I don't a, use that's brakes. A really good example, John. You know, when you press on the gas, as hard as you can, put the pedal to the metal, you're going to experience compensatory acceleration because the, the engine is getting greater and greater amounts of gas. And But if you press on the pedal slowly and, and over the course of a minute's worth of time, you gradually bring the pedal down to the metal, you, you know, you're not going to accelerate. You're going to accelerate, but you're not going to accelerate the way you have to in a world of sport. It's always pedal to the metal you know the uh the biggest uh factor what i've seen is really kind of the i mean and we, we watched today with two of the girls that we were working with from uh the lfl chelsea and amanda it's that ability to transition from that eccentric to concentric and that all of a sudden that explosion out of the hole and yeah. uh, earlier in the week they squatted with just a, a barbell and then today we used the safety squat bar and it was pretty amazing how uh how much different or how you know like they could actually catch a bounce and they were much faster in the reversal strength of their starting strength with a bar the minute we put the safety squat bar and they had their hands out in front of them and not into that you know position where you can almost leverage uh twerk against you know your back by pulling on the bar or pushing on it or doing different deals uh, it was it was pretty interesting to see how much uh more lax and how they couldn't generate the same force out of the hole so uh you know just looking for different ways to do it um you know if you're pretty strong but it's really that transition uh, out of the hole you know how does an athlete really attack that is it plyos is it uh you know pauses is it box squats i mean what's the you know uh, really attack or the fix for creating yeah. a reversal in that starting strength i'm not a big believer in box squats i've seen way too many athletes hurt themselves horribly with box squats uh, I mean, I could give you example after example, uh, and, and everybody says, well, you got to do them right. Well, I don't want to do them at all if they're that damn dangerous. And I, I abandoned box squats very early in my career because I found that I, I was able to generate greater force out of the hole with, with uh, compensatory acceleration and other techniques. So what's the point of using a, a, a technique of training that doesn't give me maximum returns? So I abandoned it as being uh, superfluous. Now, as far as, as uh, the uh, best training method that I have ever come across is that mini gym. I am so surprised that other guys have not picked up on this because learning how to turn on an optimum or maximum number of motor units is a learned response. It's not something that you can automatically do. It just doesn't happen. You have to learn how to do it by lowering excitation thresholds in those harder to reach white muscle fiber uh, uh, motor units. You know, a, a motor unit is comprised of uh, anywhere from one or two to as many as 90 or 100 individual muscle cells. 
the ones with a low number of motor units, a low number of muscle fibers, those are the motor units that are that are uh, related to the red slow twitch muscle fibers for endurance. And you know that you cannot generate a whole lot of force with red muscle fiber, but you can make them contract many, many times longer than a white muscle fiber can, which is highly fatigable. So the muscle fibers that are associated with motor units with high number of muscle fibers, they are the white muscle fibers. So when you turn on one of those suckers, you're going to blast off because you have so many muscle fibers uh, working for you all at once. Because you ever hear of the all or none theory? The all or none theory states that all of the muscle fibers and all of the uh, individual uh, um, actin and myosin myofilaments within each muscle fiber are going to contract fully or they're not going to contract at all. So that all or none theory works in, in great favor for power athletes if they learn how to use it. Now, the, the chemoelectrical impulse that goes down into that motor unit to turn it on, that can be coaxed to become lower and lower so that you can get it turned on much more quickly. That's the key that mini gym training will give a person is that you can train uh, uh, those motor units to turn on sooner and get greater explosiveness. So doc, that kind of, um, that kind of goes into a question that uh, text had sent me earlier and he was referring to um, your starting strength, the, the Q angle. If, if that's your ability to turn on as many motor units as possible instantaneously, then explosive strength is your ability ability to leave them turned on. That's right? correct. The two are not the same. They are so, not the same. They yeah, are... you kind of refer to that as speed strength. Yeah. And uh, we often reference a replication of speed for field sport athletes. So. How would you approach training speed strength with a field sport athlete where their end goal would be to kind of be in this turned on state the whole like 60 minutes of the game? (laughs) Therein lay the the rub. It's a difficult thing to do. But when you find an athlete who is able to maintain focus, get himself into that so that the, that so-called zone, they're going to be able to do amazing things, remarkable things. But you've got to stay focused. That's that's the you've all seen athletes. You probably have experienced it yourself, where on a particular series of plays or a particular movement or or whatever golf course uh, 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 hitting a a drive, everything seemed to come together. And, and it was so effortless and you had you, you had a peak performance. Well, that's because there were no intervening variables coming to bear on your on your concentration. You turned off all five senses, turned them off and and you got into the now you got into the moment where there is no past and there is no future. There is only now. And that is the the zone that's called the zone being in the now or in the present moment and it's a state of higher consciousness that allows you to do that that's where you have to go that's where you have to be 
So, Dr. Hatfield, I thought of that question uh, just kind of listening into your and John's conversation from uh, the other week. And part of that kind of came from uh, the speed strength. And then how would you uh, kind of approach a, a team in training that, that zone with a barbell on your back? So I know we talk about compensatory acceleration and moving the bar as fast as possible. Uh, but how would you take that idea to a group setting? The only way that I've ever been able to do this is if you have a, a, a couple or three or four athletes hanging around, you know, waiting for their turn at the bar or whatever, and instructing the person under the bar or under the mini gym machine and watching that needle. You watch that needle on a mini gym, you can see the, the needle rise and, and get, and get uh, higher and higher over the course of, of, the, of the lift. That's not good. I want to bury that needle right out of the hole at 1,600 pounds and leave it there or higher all the way through the lift. And so this kind of visual um, uh, feedback that the athletes get, even if they're just standing around watching, they are able to relate to that. So the, to me, the best teaching uh, um, technique or method is to give them feedback. And I like that visual feedback. Once you get underneath the bar, you're going to get tactile feedback. And uh, eventually, once you get good at it and you're able to do it at will, uh, you no longer have to think about it. You go into the zone where there is no senses. There are no senses uh, to take up any, any section of your thinking process. And you stop thinking altogether and rely upon technique. That technique is so ingrained that it just happens. That's when you get the peak performance. When you no longer have to think about anything but pure movement. You go down and you come up or whatever. And so the, the feedback to me is what's important. I'm a big believer in feedback. If, if it's, you know, at first it has to be verbal, just like I'm, I'm teaching now. But then uh, somehow or other, you've got to be able to see it or feel it. Here's another example of how it can be done. You just put a couple of electrodes on your skin and let them pick up the tension of the muscle under, underlying that skin. And you can watch it on a little oscilloscope. And that's the kind of feedback that really helps a lot. And that machine that you just mentioned, John, I forgot what you call it that you have in oh, your gym. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Tendo unit. Yeah, the Tendo unit. They work pretty well, too. No, it was, um, we actually set it up in two ways. Uh, the first time when we set it up for the girls, it was facing us. And and then when Luke and I got in there and squatted, we actually turned it to, uh, turned it to where you could see it. So you'd complete a rep. And we could look immediately at the machine and know whether or not you were, you know, hitting the parameters we want. And, um, yeah. and we were we were measuring like meters per second. We were measuring the force on the bar and the wattage and all that. Yep. And uh, that became like an instant feedback, you know, loop where you, you know, you execute the rep and you look right at the machine and you can tell based on that number, uh, you know, did I do what I needed to do? And then it was yeah. like, hey, you know what? We're going to need to speed it up. I need you to get out of there faster. And yeah. all of a sudden, this sense of urgency really kind of blossomed. And, you know, <laughs> where, you know, the yeah. first rep was pretty good. The second rep was pretty good. Then the third one was, and then fourth was like, eh. and then all of a sudden you're in that last mindset. We were doing fives, that last rep, like I got to pick this thing up. And it was always the last rep was always the fastest rep. 
Let me tell you what the greatest feedback mechanism of all is for any athlete in any sport. It's the roar of the crowd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh and that brings it down to, you know, our philosophy in terms of we, we get and I'm sure, Doc, as you have through your career, I mean, you have hundreds and thousands of people asking you these questions about training, uh, forgetting and, and whether or not they're even coaches. And, you know, at our seminar, we make it a point to say that it's performance based and, you know, the numbers count. But the only numbers that really count is, you know, the, the score at the end of the game or your win loss record. Uh, you know, don't get so hung up on trying to improve your one on squat or your mile time that you you forget how to play your sport. You forget what it's all about. You know? I, I agree. Listen, that, if you have if you have a team of athletes who have taken personal responsibility for their respective roles in the game and have prepared themselves with compensatory acceleration and other techniques as finely as possible. And if they have the passion to win and the passion to, you know, just forget about everything around them, you know, what you're going to end up with is a team that will never lose uh, because winning will become a foregone conclusion. Well, I mean, uh, you know, the biggest difference I noticed as an NFL player between the good and the great was confidence. I mean, you talked about fear and, uh, you know, as you're, you know, squatting, eccentrically loading a thousand pounds to the hole and then driving out. I mean, you know, uh, if there's any doubt or any fear in your mind or any, uh, you know, shadow of a doubt that you can't execute the lift, you're probably either going to fail or you're going to hurt something. Or oh, you're going to go so slow that uh, it won't matter, you know? <laughs> yeah, you'll just, yeah, you'll just take it for a ride and somebody's got to help you back up with it. But I, I mean, we saw the same thing in the NFL, the guys that walked into the game that had doubt and had fear, uh, you know, they always, it, it's like they all, you know, their worst fears were going to come true. And I've, I've told the story a few times of a guy I played with and we were going out to play in a, a playoff game and he was a backup. The starter got hurt and he, uh, you know, all of a sudden had to get into a, a starting role. And the guy he was going against was one of the best in the NFL. And um, I remember we practiced all week. We watched film. Everything seemed to be pretty good. And before we were about to run over on kickoff or, or uh, run out the tunnel before uh, for introductions, he turns and looks at me and goes, uh, you know, how good could Dwight Freeney really be? He's just a man, right? I mean, like, how good could he really be? And I remember looking at him and, like, the look in his eyes, I just took, like, a big step back, and I was like, oh, God. And you know, <laughs> all of a sudden, he, you know, and it was true. I mean, all of a sudden, those fears and those doubts that he had in that moment became reality the, the first snap of the game and every other play that we lined up in that game. And uh, I remember later on and, you know, trying to talk to him and being like, dude, uh, even if you're going to go out there, the last thing you need to do is believe that you're going to get your ass kicked. Like you got to go out there and believe that you're going to, you know, play the game of your life. And this is going to be the difference in your life is the, you know, the good to the great. So it's, um, you know, self doubts, you know, killed more people than cancer. So, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> that's right. You know, you know I, I will tell you again, that uh, passion is the greatest contributor to improving um, your outlook and your motivation and your self-confidence. Let me, let me just tell you a little bit about passion so that your listeners will fully understand where we're coming from here. I, I delivered this particular uh, talk, and it'll only take a minute, to, uh, to the um, 
Kansas City Chiefs about 25 or 30 years ago, when right before they had a game with uh, the L.A. Raiders, and and it so stoked them up, man. After the game, the guys were coming up to me and saying, "Man, you got to write that down. I never heard anything like that because they it so motivated them." And it, and here's what it is: passion. It's not commitment to excellence, rather utter disdain for anything less. Not endless hours of practice, perfect practice. Not ability to cope, rather the total domination of every situation in life. Not setting goals, goals too often prescribe performance limits. And it's not doing what it takes to win. Instead, it's a burning commitment to do what no one has ever done before or ever will do again. It's not the need to achieve. Instead, it's doing what it takes to exceed the bounds of mere convention. It's not the force of skill or muscle. It's the irrepressible, sometimes explosive force of will. Now, if you believe in and practice these things, then for you, winning is neither everything nor the only thing, as the great Vince Lombardi once said. If you believe in and practice these things, then for you, winning has become a foregone conclusion. But if along the way you somehow stumble, profit from the experience, then bow by the power of almighty God, it'll never happen again. <laughs> so there. Wow, that's, worth, that's amazing. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Uh, We're in tears. Doc, that's awesome. Uh, the fact that you've memorized that and still could uh, put it out there is unbelievable. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> Well, you know, that is how I live my life. That's uh, that's how you got to where you were. I mean, yeah. I'm truly I passionate about the work. I believe it is. Wow, that's amazing. How do we top that? What do we transition I, to? I, I don't know. I, I figured like we just, right just uh, I don't know. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to ask him. Uh, was when you squatted that thousand pounds, you were in your forties, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so I just turned 41. (laughs) (laughs) Danny, are you asking how to squat a thousand pounds? Yeah. I'm not asking how to squat a thousand pounds, but, um, you know, I kind of feel like as I've gotten older, I've gotten, uh, better like performance. I've, I've lifted more weight than I did when I was younger, you know, it's just coming from a different background probably, but it's like, I never, I always want to continue to improve no matter how old I get. And there's always the naysayers around you that are kind of like, well, you know, eventually this is going to happen and eventually that's going to happen. And it's like, I don't accept that. You know, I just want to keep improving, keep getting stronger and faster. And, you know, I believe that it's the passion that I have within myself that kind of helps me um, pursue that goal slash dream. Um, How did, I mean, would you, I guess what I'm asking is here, it it took you to do that in your 40s. I mean, could you have done that in your 20s or is it just the way things happened or, you know, what, I guess what would, What's your take on that? Okay, I'll I'll tell you what it is. I I spent an awful lot of time in other sports before I settled into powerlifting. 
the very first thing that I was, I was an Olympic weightlifter and a gymnast. And before that, by the way, I was a farmer. I, I bailed hay when I was a kid. All through my childhood, I worked my full head off throwing bales of hay up in the back of a truck and stuff like that, you know. I was a pretty strong kid. And then and then I got into gymnastics, and I was, I was in love with gymnastics, and I spent almost 20 years of my life uh, doing gymnastics, trying to make an Olympic team there. And I went to the national championships four years in uh, gymnastics. And uh, then uh, I graduated from uh, from uh, college and, uh, and went through graduate school and and uh, I started falling in love with Olympic weightlifting more, and, and so I went back to that, uh, my first my first sport. And uh, in the intervening years of high school and college, I did track and field. You know, I played soccer. <laughs> I did. I even played basketball. I was a third stringer on the on a college basketball team. So I mean, uh, I, I went. I went. Uh, around the horn as 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 they say in in sports but so in other words i didn't get into powerlifting until i was uh almost almost uh well into my 30s almost almost 40. and i believe that if powerlifting were a sport back when i was younger and it wasn't powerlifting didn't come into a into being until uh the mid 60s and the late and early 70s uh, but if, if I were in powerlifting in my early days, I surely wouldn't have taken any longer than I did, maybe even less time because I was less worn out, fewer injuries and so forth. And uh, <laughs> so it, it's not that it took me into my 40s to make it. It's just that I didn't get started until I was nearly 40. Okay. And um, but you were still able to do this great feat you know, this great feat of strength, um, in the year 40. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's still improvement that can be made with, you know, with an athlete in his forties, possibly yeah. into his fifties. Yeah. In fact, I was getting stronger. Um, when I finally made the decision to, uh, to quit, uh, and, uh, and there was a, a very practical reason. I wanted to spend more time with my kids, <laughs> you know, I was, I lived, ate, slept and breathed what I was, I was doing. I was a priest to what I did, literally a priest. You look up, look up the word priest in the dictionary. You'll see that's what I was. And, uh, a different time came upon me. Uh, I began to realize that I, I was a family man and I had other responsibilities and I had, a, I had a bunch of kids that I had to teach and um, be an example to and all of that kind of stuff. Plus, I was in a very demanding job that took me all over the world. Uh, and uh, so I, I just, uh, I had to back away. And I had no regrets backing away because when I, when I did quit, I was starting to get nagging little injuries. And I knew that uh, well into my 40s, nearly, you know, late 40s, I was going to hurt myself. And uh, in my old age, I would I would suffer the consequences of of that kind of uh, damaging injury. So I, I quit at the right time, I believe. And uh, um, you know, there's an old saying too. Um, Confucius says, "He who climbs a mountain the first time climbs it because it's there. He climbs it a second time just to prove that the first time wasn't a fluke." But shame on he who tries to climb the mountain 
three times. So I, I had done what I wanted to do. I, I went over a thousand pounds. I was actually kissing 1100 at the time I quit. So I, uh, it was just time to quit. What, uh, so doc, what do you, what do your kids do? Are they in athletics or sports or any performance components like you were in? Well, yeah, well, yeah, my, my older son, Freddie, uh, went into uh, powerlifting. He, he was actually a pretty good powerlifter at 165. He was squatting well over 500. Uh, and, and, uh, my daughter Disa did the same thing. She made the, uh, she made the U S team and uh, came in third in the world and stuff like that. Uh, so she was actually an accomplished powerlifter, and uh, but now she he's a got his master's degree and teaches up in Maryland, and she's got her doctorate and teaches uh, exercise physiology at the University of Rhode Island. So oh. they're they're doing fine. They're all grown up now. And you you pass along all the the necessary knowledge, huh, to get them going in their in their journey. Uh, well, now she teaches me. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Denny, do we have any other questions? Uh, yeah, we do have a few questions from the forums. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. Well, one of our followers, uh, Little Sean, he's interested uh, in your opinions on some of the other programs that are out there. Um, he wrote in saying, I've seen a lot of people try to adapt various strength programs into CrossFit training. Examples would be trying to incorporate the West Side program into CrossFit or Catalyst Athletics or the Small Off program. Um, he's interested in your opinions of those programs, including your own, and can or should they be adapted uh, for other uses? That All right. I so told that, real quick, real quick before you get going, Doc, are you familiar with a lot of the stuff that Denny was was pushing out there? Are you familiar with those programs? Yeah. Okay. So Catalyst oh, cool. is a uh, you obviously know you know Westside, which is the you know the dynamic max effort and Luis and stuff, and then Catalyst is a pure Olympic weightlifting, and then the other one is uh, Small Off is uh, just a basically like a insane Russian volume squat program. So what he's asking for is. Uh, you know, he's, it's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, but what he's really looking for is how, you know, the secret squirrel program, like yeah. incorporating strength training into something like CrossFit, which is, you know, uh, the idea of, uh, you know, uh, you know, fitness as it defined by CrossFit. I understand. First of all, you have to understand that CrossFit is not a method of training. It's, it's a method or a conditioning for a sport. It's a method of, 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 of it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle of, of uh, fitness type stuff. And quite frankly, I've got a lot of problems with that because, you know, in all the world of training, well, I don't care what kind of a training program, whether it's Louis Simmons or, or, uh, or uh, Greg Glassman with CrossFit or any of the other guys or gals that are doing stuff out there like this, there are laws that have to be adhered to. When you go out on the road, you have to abide by the laws of the road. When you're amongst other people, you have to abide by the laws of your society and so forth. And if you don't, you suffer the consequences. You get hurt, you get thrown in jail, whatever have you. Well, lifting and training has certain laws. And uh, 
you know, I used to read about these laws every once in a while. I, I'm talking, I'm going back 50 years now. I'd read something in the old Iron Man magazine or, uh, or Strength and Health or one of the other magazines, and I'd say, well, that sounds really good. And he's, this guy's calling it a law or a basic principle. So over the course of years of time, I put together all of those laws of training, and I smoothed them out, and I, I worked with them, and I, I came up with a, a list of seven granddaddy laws. These laws, the seven granddaddy laws, must never be broken, regardless of the trading methodology that you're using. All right, and uh, CrossFit breaks almost all of them. Let me just go through the list real quick. Just real quick, okay? Principle of individual differences. Obviously, CrossFit doesn't doesn't adhere to that because everybody's doing the same thing. The wad, workout of the day, principle of overcompensation, Whoa. and the principle of overload. Well, CrossFit does that a little bit because you do make gains. You you get bigger, you get stronger, you get more enduring, whatever have you. So there's there's an amount of adherence to those two laws: overcompensation and overload. The said principle. Specific adaptation to impose demands. Well, you're imposing so many different demands on the body that it can't compensate to any full amount. So they're breaking that principle. The use-disuse principle. All they're doing is work overtraining over and over and over again. And uh, the, uh, the workouts are random. And you can't lose what you don't use. It's as simple as that. The specificity principle uh, is being violated with CrossFit because <laughs> training training works like a funnel. You have to understand it. You go from general training to specific training. From one day of workout of the day, there is no pretense of any sort of foundational training in CrossFit. There's no foundation. There's no nothing. You just go right into trying to do kip-ups on the still rings or snatches for 30 reps for crying out loud. You know, that's just out, out, outrageous and insane. And then there's the general adaptation uh, principle, GAS, they call it the gas law, okay? All of the CrossFit workouts, you are required to go at them with 100% intensity. There's no, there's no back off periods, there's no, uh, uh, compensation or overcompensation period or recovery period, you're going balls to the wall all the time. And it's crazy. And, you know, there are so many people getting hurt with CrossFit that it, it's, it's really bothersome to me personally. And it's bothersome. In fact, uh, CrossFit was just recently uh, sued and or not sued, but the uh, raked over the coals by the National Strength and Conditioning Association people, and they in turn sued, CrossFit sued them for defamation of character. And you know, uh, it's very interesting watching this lawsuit unfold. But basically, there are way too many people getting injured in CrossFit, and it's a shame because I love CrossFit. You know, when I was a kid, I told you I was a gymnast, and I loved all of the various things that the people do in CrossFit. I did all of that stuff every day or every other day as a kid playing. I was able to do a, uh, a flag on a, on a pole. I could do a kip up on the high bar or the still rings. At any time, I could do a handstand. I could walk a half a mile on my hands. And that was all play for me. But you, you can't ask 40-year-old Mrs. Jones, 
who's obese and detrained from a lifetime of slovenly living to do that kind of stuff. Yet they're being required to do the wad. And it's just crazy. It's insane. Yeah, Doc, but I mean, like, let's say you bring somebody in, like, uh, obviously somebody that's deconditioned, like a 40-year-old, and you bring them in and, like, scale it in such a way. I mean, I, you know, I've seen people that were detrained and weren't necessarily athletes or didn't have an athletic background come in and, you know, uh, you know, maybe just a basic working on a basic pull up or even these basic foundational movements. And I think, uh, you know, I owned a CrossFit gym for a number of years and just bringing people in and teaching them just basic strength and conditioning, just getting them to run better, move better. I mean, it's paid a lot of good dividends. I think, uh, you know, that's a great thing, but now we're not talking about CrossFit. We're talking about, uh, delving out of the CrossFit mold of the wad and, uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the so-called, uh, uh, what are you, you know, they got they got different names for different kinds of uh, workout programs they got they got things they call uh oh shoot what do you call them uh, uh i got a couple of them listed here hang on one second yeah and really what what it's all about though doc and it's really the training goal and that's one thing that we're talking about yeah. here is our training goal and what what your what we're trying to do is is reinforce the concept that speed kills and that's your that's what the seven laws of your training are all about is is being able to generate maximal force maximal power production for an environment where uh the demands of your sport don't last but a microsecond versus that's right if, if that's you, the the adaptation that you're going to get from these extended efforts would be your inability to potentially hit that but you get a lot better at that general work capacity which is the objective so whenever we get posed with this question like uh you know what's better what's worse uh we always we always say hey well what are you training for so i guess if you had some athletes that came to you and were like hey i want to be really good really good at crossfit which is broad general inclusive everything that you can do and let's say they were physiologically or physiologically capable in terms of you know healthy younger athletes that could could perform at that level then you probably would have them doing some maximal loads to get better at lifting some maximal loads, even yeah, though it yeah. violates the seven principles that, that we're really, we're really big advocates of because maximal power output is our objective, you know, in terms of the building that power athlete. Yeah. Yeah. But see in CrossFit, they've got these workouts for, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at a list of some of them, the Barbara, five circuits of 20 pull-ups, 30 push-ups, 40 sit-ups, 50 body weight only squats performed in order while only resting at the end of each circuit for a three-minute period. And then you do it again five times. The Angie, 100 pull-ups, 100 pull-ups, push-ups, 100 sit-ups, 100 body weight only squats. And the Murph, a one-mile run followed by 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 body weight squats, finished off by another one-mile run. The Jackie, a thousand meter low thrusters, you know, 50 thrust, uh, squat thrusts, you know, with a selected weight, 30 pumps, and, and so forth. Well, see, these are, uh, are uh, prescriptions that people have to do, regardless of what their objectives are. 
fat Mrs. Jones comes into the gym wanting to fit into a size five dress. This is not the kind of workout that you work out that you put her through. Yeah, but she, but she can probably get into that size five dress at the end of it. But I mean, Doug, <laughs> so think about this, right? Yeah. Uh, you yeah. were a high level uh, gymnast and a sprinter. So uh, you obviously have a background, super strong powerlifting this whole deal. Uh, I gotta believe that if this was present day and you were in your twenties, you would be competing in the CrossFit Games. Hmm. Was that a question for me? No, I, I, it's a statement. I I believe it. Am, am I right or wrong? I mean, as with the gymnastics background and what you've seen of it, I like to believe that you would have excelled at this sport. Or, oh, CrossFit. Yeah. Oh, I would have been the world champion in CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I was getting at. I was like, you are like the prototypical for, you know, when they, when CrossFit starts talking about, you know, like what does, uh, you know, like what would they expect out of the person who is their champion? It's usually like, you know, uh, you look at Greg Glassman's deal was usually like a, a fairly uh, adept gymnast as a kid, uh, a track runner, Olympic weightlifter. And it's, I've, I've heard this, this uh, analogy or this, you know, prescription given, we're talking yeah. about like, Hey, this is the person we would expect to be a kind of a, a CrossFit Games winner. As you were going through it, I'm like, you grew up uh, bailing hay, you were a gymnast, you were a sprinter, and you were an Olympic weightlifter and a powerlifter. I'm like, Doc, I think uh, you were born later in life. You probably would have been the CrossFit Games. Not too late. Yeah, I, I love CrossFit. Don't get me wrong. I love all of that stuff. And none of these things in my youth would have been a challenge for me at all. I could I could have pulled it off. No trouble. But see, I'm not an average person. I'm not a person out there looking to get fit. And in fact, I'm not even an average athlete. Most athletes never achieve the kind of fitness, overall fitness that I was able to achieve. So on that thread, this is going to be kind of a, a, a shift, but one of the things that we're working with and we get peppered with in terms of, let's say, the average athlete or the amateur athlete, because the majority of the coaches we work with, they deal with the bell curve, which is really the average. In terms of the plyometrics training and its importance in a lot of this power development, uh, how would you take an athlete who maybe has um, – we'll call it traditional coaching in a field sport, which is these guys just get conditioned, right? You run laps, you run miles, wind sprints, things like that. Nothing really well thought out in our experience in terms of a strength program. Uh, they're following just basically a bodybuilding circuit. If a, if a kid came to you, let's say he's a 16, 18 year old kid, plays football, basketball, baseball, and, and you wanted to start that athlete on plyometrics, how would you scale that accordingly? I would not start them on plyometrics. Okay. You, you have to reach a certain level of limit strength, uh, being able to handle your own body weight before you even think about doing plyometric training because plyometric training in its purest form is very, very stressful. So no, I wouldn't begin them with plyometrics. Which point would you really get the plyos in? I mean, I know, uh, you know, if you read Zaskorsi's work, he talks about two times body weight back squat being the beginning for depth jumps and, and for really the high intensity. Yeah, plyos. stuff like that, sure. Well, you know, I mean, I, I would, I would incorporate, you know, a little bit of really gentle jumping, hopping, and skipping early on to get him used to the idea of coming off the ground with a little bit of checkpoint uh, or checkmark uh, uh, intensity, but but only a little bit, you know, holding them back, holding them back, uh, maybe having them do some of them up up a mild hill, a slight uh, incline, for example, 
just just to purposely slow him down or have him do it with a weighted vest on him so that he couldn't possibly do it with explosive vests. But eventually- so you're, so you're actually limiting the explosiveness in the early phase, phases of this plyometrics, I guess- uh, I said is that transition, the amortization phase of going down to up, that's when people get hurt. And mm -hmm. plyometrics is designed to optimize that, that uh, uh, transitional zone going from down to up. That's what it's for. That's what plyometrics does beautifully well. Uh, getting a, getting your body to all of a sudden stop and reverse direction is what plyometrics is all about. And it's very dangerous. So you have to work into it slowly. Doc, when you were a young gymnast um, and, you know, something like, I, I don't know, how old were you when you started uh, doing, you know, training hard in gymnastics? Um, I was just out of the Marine Corps and a freshman in college. So you're so you were 18 years old as no, you I got into 20, it. I was 22 years old. Oh, you're 22. So as you got into gymnastics, uh, had you already had a, a you know a decent strength training base? I mean, you said you were already pretty strong from training on the farm. Oh yeah, and the Marines. yeah being on a farm, and I was an Olympic weightlifter before that. And all through the Marine Corps, I mean, I even played football in the Marine Corps. You know, I did everything I could do to stay in shape. You know, most of the guys that I was in the Marine Corps with got themselves horribly out of shape. <laughs> sure. Well, the so so when, when you got into the, uh, uh, you know, started your gymnastics training, you were already pretty strong. So when you, you start looking at, like, you know, uh, dynamic movement, like, uh, like a floor routine, which, you know, if, for anybody that's ever seen gymnastics do floor routine, it just looks, I mean, the eccentric load followed by you know being able to tie movements together is really you know yeah that's all oh, about yeah. that's yeah, that's cool. plyometric training at its most advanced i agree so yeah, i was bring... definitely more ready than the average person at that age definitely just from a lifetime of uh you know uh lifting and stuff like that cool so then i guess after they build that body weight competency that's when you would start to, again, slowly and carefully introduce that stuff. Yes, indeed. Mm. Interesting. That's well, but not before. So I got I got another question from uh, from our coach, uh, Tex, who had to drop off the line. He said uh, he's getting getting a quote from a fresh look at strength, and he says uh, he's quoting yet understand uh, understand that simply working limit strength is not the way for an athlete to become great. In fact, it slow you down uh, if carried to the extreme. What we that's observe, and, and that's what we observe in current current training protocols is that coaches tend to chase that limit strength. And uh, what Tex was curious is, uh, did you observe a shift in mindset of field sports strength and conditioning? When uh, when like when did you observe that when they started to fall in love with the numbers and they started chasing numbers? Okay. Uh, this goes all the way back to the very beginning of my my experience in fitness, all the way back into the mid fifties. Uh, coaches were saying that they didn't want their athletes to lift weights because it would slow them down. It would make them more muscle bound, and uh, and uh, they would lose their touch and stuff like that. And so I began to listen to them, and I'm saying to myself, that's not my experience. I feel like I'm a better athlete from, uh, from what little lifting I had done by, by the time I was a teenager. And so over the course of years of time, it became very clear to me why those Doc, are you there? I don't know if we may, maybe you muted something or unplugged something. Are you there? I'm here. 
All right, now we got you loud and clear. So for some, I'm not sure why, but it cut out that uh, over the course of time, you, you noticed, uh, you were noticing something. So go ahead. Yeah, over, over the course of time, it became very clear to me that the athlete, that the coaches weren't wrong. They were right. Because lifting heavy weights will indeed slow an athlete down. If they're taught to lift the weight slowly, they're going to be slow on a field, you know, and they're not going to be able to explode with compensatory acceleration because they never did it in the gym. So the the whole idea is to uh, is to take them out of their Volkswagen body and put them into a Maserati. Now, if you do that right off the bat, they're going to try to drive that Maserati just like they used to drive the Volkswagen. And it won't be any advantage to them to have the Maserati. So there's got to be a period of accommodation, a period of transition uh, where they're skills are are kept in, intact while their body is changing while their body is becoming stronger and bigger and uh, and uh, so forth their skill has to has to be uh, accomplished with that bigger and stronger body in such a way that their skill is enhanced not held back so there's an accommodation uh, principle that I, you know, I would add to the seven granddaddy laws that one more principle of accommodation for athletes that as your body changes, you've got to change your skills to match. So, do you, would you foresee, I guess, a shift in mindset? And what do you think it would take for a shift in mindset for a lot of the, the we'll call them, I guess we'll call them old school strength coaches who are, who are after that maximum strength? to pay more attention to bar speed and, uh, you know, the approach that you really take, or are the kids of our, can the kids that are playing sports now, can they not trust their coaches and they have to come to the more progressive thinkers like, uh, I, yeah, I think those kids have to have to shy away from their old school coaches, uh, as much as they possibly can get away with and go visit somebody that knows what they're doing. Right. Well, if, if somebody trains with compensatory acceleration, they're focusing on bar speed. I mean, in our conversation, you told me that before you squatted that 1014, you didn't take over 800 in training. But no. when, you, when you hooked up that torque meter or whatever, you, or, you know, figured it out, you were exerting like 1400 pounds of force on the bar. That's so right. it had been something where you'd never taken that thousand pound squat. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're training at such a high level, you go in and you probably were in the warm up room and sort of just blasting the weights up. And you're like, you know what, I'm going for this thousand fourteen today. Was that kind of how it played out? That's pretty much it. I mean, I, I was a little bit more methodical than that, but 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 you're right. I mean, it uh, it, uh, it it came upon me, um, sort of like a thief in the night, so to speak. You know, uh, I finally got to the point where I was doing that 800, 850 pounds with such tremendous force that I knew that I could go well over a thousand. I just knew it. And I did. Yeah. And the, the other key thing that uh, Doc and I talked about, which has kind of been forgotten about in strength, uh, strength training circles, was he was doing uh, progressive overloads where you were doing walkouts with, you told me, 1,300 pounds and just doing static holds with the weight? Yes, yes. The static holds are very important because, you know, if, if all I ever did was the 800-pound squats and then walked out of the rack with 1,000 pounds on my back, my nervous system would shut down. I wouldn't know what to do with that kind of uh, stress on my skeletal structure. And all of the uh, proprioceptors would say, wait a minute, you can't lift this, Fred. You've never lifted this before. So I would walk out and do static holds, what we call overloads, with uh, with uh, 120 
percent of uh, what I thought my my uh, existing max was. So I'd go out with sometimes 1,200, 1,300 pounds and just hold it. That way, when I got to the comp, and I only have to do this three or four times prior to the meet. And then when I walk out with 1,000 pounds on my back, it feels like a, like a walk in the park. <laughs> Wait, uh, so when you did the, um, the static deal, I mean, you literally would take it out of the rack, walk it out, because obviously there wasn't a monolith back then. And how long would you hold it for? Uh, just a count of 10. Well, to a count of 10 and then you put it back in and then, and then how, yeah. uh, how like would you do multiple sets or just do it once or how would it I'll work do a couple or couple of three sets at the very most usually only two wow and always at the end of your squat workout like obviously you got done maybe you know doing triples or something at 8 of, uh, 850 and then you know uh, you were done with your work and you're like okay let's load it up and let's do some you know progressive overloading deal and some static that, bolts on. that's exactly right but now, and only for the last three weeks uh, the, in fact, the last week of competition, the last week of training, I did no training at all. I just did one set of overloads. Wow. Great. Why, uh, why do you think people like, uh, it's, I mean, it's not commonplace anymore. Like people don't really seem to, to do it. I remember, you know, uh, you know, early in my life when we were pretty young, I remember going and we went to some high school deal where it was like a max bench at like 185 and. Uh, I remember going in and then having us just hold like 225, 275, uh, you know, just for some static holds before we went to do the 185 and everybody seemed to do pretty well. And then it seems to be something that people don't necessarily really talk about is that where that, you know, all of a sudden the smarter we get, the things we forget about, almost the dumber we get. Uh, I understand. Yeah, I know it's it's good. It's something that you know that just not a lot of people talk about anymore. But you know, in terms of overloading that nervous system and getting that body to fire and just being able to you know teach the body, hey, this is what this load's going to feel like, and then all of a sudden you go into it. It's that idea that uh, you know. And the other key one is it seems like in powerlifting, like most things, people go in and they end up hitting the numbers that they hit in the gym. I mean, it sounds like you know you were in there, you know, able to hit some you know 150 plus pounds over what your best gym lift was. So I mean, oh, always, always, you know, and I, I learned that by the way, uh, very early in my career. And then there was fortified even more. So when I traveled to the Soviet union and, and, and trained under, uh, Yuri Verkashansky for a little while. And, uh, I went to a lot of, of his seminars and so forth. Uh, I found out that all of the great Olympic weightlifters in Russia, uh, did that exact same thing. They would go up to maybe 90% or 92% of max uh, during their training. And then they'd add anywhere from 8 to 10% onto their max uh, during the competition and succeed every single time. Hmm. Whereas the Americans were going to max all the time and they'd rarely even make their max at the competition. You know, it was stupid. Well, what about like a, a Bulgarian system where the Bulgarian lifters were working up to a one RM? I mean, that's kind of, uh, you know, if you look at that Bulgarian system, I mean, that pretty much breaks every single of, uh, one of your seven laws, you know, I yeah. mean, unless it's specificity of movement. And, and, and I mean, I can't, I can't answer that because I'm not real well-versed on what the Bulgarians actually did. I, I hear a lot about Bulgarian training systems and, uh, and, uh, guys writing this stuff down uh for example uh uh i think tom platts many years ago wrote down a bulgarian training system and the reason that he wrote it down was because somebody paid him to do it and uh, it became a very popular training system the truth of the matter was that that's not how the bulgarians trained <laughs> they trained under the soviet system i don't believe anything i hear when i hear bulgarian training 
And by the way, how are the Bulgarians doing these days? <laughs> I don't know. Are they even a country anymore? <laughs> so, you know, all I can say is, no, I'm, 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 uh, uh, I'm a, one of those show me kind of guys. You know, I want to see it with my own eyes. You know, and, and I happen to know the the, uh, the uh, genesis of the Bulgarian training system was a, uh, a training program that some guy had put together and asked Tom Platts to put his name to. And uh, I don't believe that the Bulgarians ever trained the way that our article said they did. Yeah, we're going to have to go back and find it. I, I had the opportunity to read a bunch of uh, information and communicate with uh, uh, Abijayev, who was the Bulgarian coach, and uh, ended up, you know, trading some emails with those guys. And they uh, he, he went and did a, a pretty interesting um, strength conditioning lecture and, and put out some programs and one of them was for a football player and we ended up uh, using it and it was all based on working up to a 1RM and a squat, a press and a pull every single day and then doing some drop sets. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And it was uh, a pretty interesting program in that, uh, you know, their whole deal was, you know, you work up to a 1RM as long as the weight is fast. If the weight gets slow and grindy, you went too heavy. So every one of those 1RMs oh, was like... You know, well, that's the answer right there. Yeah, so they they, they were training off of uh, not a competition max, but training off of like a uh, training max where you yeah. know they knew that they were ten percent better in competition. So then everything was based off of ninety, and then they were working up to you know let's say ninety percent of their ninety, which was really eighty in the Russian system, and then basically doing that PAP deal where it's like I'm working up to something heavy, and then yeah. I'm, gonna do, I'm gonna drop and do some drop sets. Well, and, I lost uh, my case. Yeah, that I mean that training program. Uh, you know, paid some really good dividends for uh, for the guys that were doing it. I mean, everybody got pretty strong pretty quick. And I think what it really came down to is the specificity of movement that, you know, to get good at something, you have to do it. Over if and over again. Yeah, I mean, if you're coming in and you're squatting every single day, you get really good at squatting. And it's that whole greasing the groove, uh, you know, mentality. I think you wrote something on it about Pavel's deal about greasing the groove. And, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that if you want to get good at something, you have to do it over and over again. That I just never accidentally got good at anything. I needed a lot of opportunities to, to, to do it and replicate it. Uh, I used to hang out with a guy, an Olympic weightlifter by the name of Dave Shepard. I don't know if you remember that name. He was one of the great Olympic weightlifters back in the 50s. Well, I hung out with him a lot, and, and uh, you, couldn't t you couldn't have a conversation with this guy ever. Walking down the street in New York City, he would all of a sudden start doing uh, uh, snatch movements in the middle of the street. You know, <laughs> you know and he said, I, I, I got I to gotta do a few of these. Hang on a minute. And he'd, and he'd give me about uh, eight or ten snatch movements, and then we'd continue our conversation. And the, you know, and he just absolutely believed that you had to grease the group. <laughs> so, but I mean, he did it without any weight on the bar, you know, there was no bar, just him. Well, I mean, like, you know, but the greatest athletes do it. I mean, I, I played with uh, Tony Gonzalez, who, you know, played 17 years in the NFL and is probably one of the best players to ever play the game. And, you know, from Tony and I went to college together and I've known him for years. And, you know, before every practice, he'd catch 200 balls. And before every, after every practice, he'd catch his balls. And uh, it was one of those deals where, you know, young guys would come in and they'd see him out there doing this. And they'd be like, wow, you know, this guy's already been a 10-year-old pro. Why is he working so hard? Yeah. And, and I remember 
remember him being like, well, you know what? This is what I did when I was young. This is what I need to do to get better. And I'm always trying to get better. And he never looked at it like, hey, I'm at this point. He always looked at it like, hey, I'm trying to constantly get better. And as a result, I mean, his work ethic was just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, never realizing that, you know, like it just wasn't an accident that he was able to play at this high level and stay healthy and do all these things that he was for yeah. so long. I mean, the- I believe in that. I, I believe that's probably a pretty good way to approach it. But, you know, you got to recognize that uh, catching a ball is not all that stressful on the body. So he's able to do it without having to pay any dire price. Sure, sure, sure. Sure. Yeah, getting underneath a thousand pounds and squatting it is probably a little more stressful than catching <laughs> yeah, a football. That's the same. You know, over the years, I've trained a lot of uh, pro football players, John, and you know, uh, a little bit before your time, actually. You know, uh, I, I'm the one who orchestrated uh, Lyle Alzado's comeback into the NFL. I don't know if you remember those days. Yeah. Well, Lyle Alzado used to live in Palos Verdes, where I uh, I'm from. And I know. I know. You. He actually tried to run my brother and I down. We were riding our bikes on the road, and this <laughs> oh, guy, you know, uh, I swear to God, Black Rolls Royce comes out of nowhere and tries to run my brother down. And it was Lal Alzado, and we were like, so, I mean, it was one of those deals where like Lal Alzado almost killed us, but dude, Lal Alzado almost killed us. <laughs> and, uh, he was a wild man. Yeah, no, he yeah he tried to run down some like ten year old kids on their bikes, so he's a crazy person. But uh, yeah, he uh, but he, he picked you. Yeah, but he picked. He us. could have picked uh, any two kids. Then like about six months later, we were at the beach and we saw him walking on the strand, you know, in in uh, in uh, Redondo Beach. And to this day, I've never seen uh, a bigger human being. Yeah. His chest was so big that you could have like put a coke can on the on the top of it, and he could have walked. <laughs> Unbelievable how big that dude So that's what Doc did for him, huh? Yeah, Doc. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's comeback. But, uh, <laughs> Doc, what was what was it? he got hurt. What, what were your other numbers? Uh, like, what was your best bench? What was your best deadlift? What was your best total? Okay, I, I, uh, I had rotator cuff repairs on both my shoulders, and I was still able to pull out a 550 bench, and I, and I deadlifted eight and, a, eight and a quarter. Wow. So what was that total? What would that be? A, I'd have to tally it up. I, but, I never added up the numbers. Uh. <laughs> so that would have been a thousand fourteen plus five fifty, and then what did you say, eight and a quarter? Yeah. That's uh twenty three eighty nine. It's just under twenty four hundred. That's uh, yeah. I mean that's I mean for a uh, the old school marathon single ply suit and those wraps. I mean. That's a, that's yeah. a pretty solid total. I mean, compared now, I mean, now they got three meter long wraps and I know. Right. Hey, you know, I I uh, had the occasion just last Sunday to pick up a pair of uh, of the wraps that the guys are wearing nowadays. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I could, I you know, I couldn't believe I I was barely able to stretch that wrap out. Yeah. And it was so heavy and so long. You know, I'm saying to myself, you know. If I had this wrap, I would have squat 200 pounds more than I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, think think about uh, you know, like the multiply stuff. I mean, the canvas suits and the yeah. you know the uh, multiply uh, briefs. I mean, Man, you know, just the stopping a, power. It's turned into a, a circus sideshow now. Uh, it's not even a sport anymore, and I, I'm so embarrassed over the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, but there, there's been a huge resurgence in the last couple of years into raw lifting, and uh, you know now it's almost made it. I mean, it, it, it's kind of interesting. Like the the multiply stuff is, uh, you know, it's pretty hot, but it's it's becomes just so laborious to 
be able to have to get in and get in all that gear. I mean, now it's like, that's why I think the raw stuff's really taken out because people just yeah. want to go in there and lift weights and not have to. I, I see that happening. Yes, yeah, so we've seen it. Return to our roots and it, it makes me happy, very happy. And Doc, but nowadays there are more raw lifters than there are gear lifters. Yeah. Doc, you seem like a pretty smart guy and uh, we're, we're coming up to the time limit, but I was curious if you, you know, your scientific approach to uh, power and strength and, and bodybuilding, have you ever, or do you have on uh, in the back of your mind, a scientific approach or scientific definition for athleticism? Oh, wow. You know, somebody asked me a question once, who the greatest athlete in the world is? And, and uh, you know, my instantaneous response was, in what sport? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't compare apples and oranges. Uh, you know, uh, athleticism, I, I told you, in all the world of sports, speed is king. So give me a movement and, sh and, uh, and have each athlete try that movement fast, and we'll see which one, which athlete is better at that particular movement. And every movement is just as different as every athlete, you know. And so you're gonna you're gonna have a there, there's there's no way to define it finitely, other than to say you know the the, the strongest and the fastest. Right. So the, so I mean, agreed that it's very task specific, but the universal trait of athleticism would be speed and quickness and strength, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what about like uh, you could take the guy who wins the gold medal in the decathlon, for example, at the uh -huh. Olympics and say, you know what, he can not only, I mean, those guys are running sub 11 second hundreds, they're running, you know, they're tossing the shot pretty far, I mean, they high jump, I mean, they do all these different movements, I mean, that could you know, be... All a, you can say about them is that they are, mad, they are uh, you know, uh, very good at all of the events, but they're not great at any of them. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's all you can say about those guys. And yeah, of course they're highly athletic. But uh, are they the best athletes? No, not not even remotely. They're they're only half baked athletes in each one of them. Yeah. Yeah. We always like to we just like to get get input on that because that's one of our big things is you know improving improving task specific athleticism as, as opposed to a general pro or as opposed to a general approach to. Yeah. Tim. Yeah, I, I, I think it has to be a highly specific question. Sure, and a case-by-case -case basis, really, right? Well, I mean, we, we've always kind of judged it. Like, I've, I've seen people that were, you know, very good football players are very good at their sport, but yet couldn't do anything like, uh, you know, whereas I've seen other guys that were, you know, good football players and could have played in the NBA and could have played Major League Baseball and had a whole, you know, uh, their skill set could apply to many, many different things. And I think, like, uh, you know, the the more things or the more tasks that you can execute with not only speed, power, but also grace, you know, uh, you know, beauty, you know, it looks looks good, I think is really when I start defining athleticism. Like, I, I agree with you, John, you know, the more tasks you give an individual to compete at, you know, the, uh, the, the sooner you're going to know his level of athleticism overall yeah. in an overall sense. But, uh, you know, like your, your, uh, your buddy who uh, caught 200 passes a day, you know, you can't deny that his pass catching ability was as good or better than just about anybody alive. So, you know, you can't discount this guy. Well, he also uh, could have played in the NBA too. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, he was, uh, you know, uh, played college basketball and, you know, definitely could have been a, a small forward in the NBA. Yeah. and ended up going on being a pretty good basketball player. So, uh, you know, that's really when we start looking at how we 
uh, not only train athletes, but define athletes and start really kind of challenging athletes. You almost have to like force them to, you know, get out in space and move and do a couple different things. It's, uh, it's almost like in the weight room, you can develop a, a certain capacity, certain strength, speed, all these key factors. But if you can't take what you learn in the weight room and then apply it out on the field at the pitch or the turf or the court or whatever it is, then, it, you know, it's kind of useless in a lot of ways. So, yeah, yeah. I've all, you know, on that same note, I've always uh, kind of wondered how I ever got the name and the nickname Dr. Squat, you know? Yeah, I was pretty good at squatting, but I could do a lot of other things really well. <laughs> so I just wonder, how come they never called me Dr. Vertical Jump or Dr. Back Handspring? Or <laughs> well, I, I like that, that you didn't give yourself that nickname that somebody yeah. else gave it to you. I, I thought all this time that you were just like, oh, yeah, I'm a doctor, so I'm, you know, I got a big squat, I'm Dr. Squat. Yeah, one of my students gave me that name many years ago, so... What, uh, what was your highest vertical jump? 40 inches. Wow. Wow. That's good. I could actually get above the rim, and I'm only five foot seven, you know? <laughs> so did uh, was the vertical always there, or did the vertical develop over time? Well, as I said, I played a little basketball, <coughs> third string basketball. And uh, back then, I could touch the rim. <laughs> but uh, I couldn't get above it. And, uh, you know, the more I was able to squat, the higher my vertical got. So. So there's a direct relation between your body's ability to generate force in a vertical plane and putting a heavy ball on your back. That's yeah, crazy. I think so. Yeah, no, I, I know we, we talk about it a lot. And, uh, you know, but the, the other key factor becomes, and this is where we, we really started doing a lot of testing on people and started using the vert Mac or the vert tech is not how much weight you squat, it's how you squat the weight. You yeah. know, I mean, that idea where, hey, you know, each, you know, for my one one RM limit RM, it takes me 20 seconds to go up and down, opposed to yeah. a guy that squats Forget the same weight and does it in, two, in one second. Right, right. It's got to be done with compensatory acceleration. Now, was compensatory acceleration something? I mean, was that did that come out of you and Berkachowski's talk? I mean, was I remember you telling me that um, that was uh, something that you had really kind of theorized and those guys kind of agreed with? Like, how, yeah, how did that whole thing come about? Believe, that's exactly right. You know, Berkachowski had gotten a hold of my book on power training, and uh, he had it translated into Russian. And uh, when I first got there, I was like. Uh, greeted by by him and a bunch of other Russian coaches as like a rock star because <laughs> they liked my book. And uh, that was one of the things that they really liked. Wow. That's pretty good. Those guys are, you know, guys are pretty heady. So anything else, Luke? We got anything oh, that's, I believe that's it for the, for the day. It's a long one. It's a good one. And uh, so thanks a lot, Doc. Uh, uh, just we have a couple announcements on our end. You can hang around if you want. But I want I want to thank you again for coming on the show, giving us your time, and also uh, you know thanks for your patience early on during the some of the technical difficulties getting thing up and running. Yeah, oh, thanks, it's not, not a problem. I got the old afternoon off. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> what about tomorrow afternoon? Got that one off too? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? for some private training stuff. But uh, <laughs> so one thing I guess for for our listeners, I just wanted to we're. We have breached the 5,000 likes barrier on our Facebook page. Oh, yeah. So we got our 5,000 likes giveaway going on. If you want to be entered in for random, uh, random drawing, we have a toes forward hashtag going on. Check out the Instagram page, and you'll get uh, you'll get all the info there. You'll be selected or entered in for a random drawing for some hot, sexy power athlete merch. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> 
because you're, I don't know, seeing if you have anything to say about that. But uh, so yeah, that's that's our thing going on now. And then what else do we got going on? Tomorrow we'll be making a video post for standards for the SWAD of the Power Athlete Team Series and a teaser for one of the uh, other group team wants. So pretty exciting. We're coming down to the wire and I know people are anxious to see what the competition's all about. And this one, this year is going to be a doozy. I'm glad I'm running it. Yeah, I'm glad <laughs> you're doing all the video demos. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Denny, you got anything for us? Uh, we're good on my end, guys. I just want to take a second and say thanks for being on the show. Dr. Hatfield, it was awesome. Yay! I love doing these. Call me anytime, folks. We'll take you up and, on that. Um, I did check out that, uh, what do we talk about? Pal Talk? That is a pretty cool forum, and um, yeah, I'll I pass love that it. info to Luke. Luke's really the computer guy, so. Yeah. Yeah. I think Pal Talk is just an ideal place to, to do a thing like this. Yeah, we'll check it out. What's up? All right, guys. Great. Thank you, Doc. I appreciate it. We'll be in touch. Okay, guys. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye.